A couple of years ago, uh, Big Eva, as sometimes we say, uh, Big Evangelicalism and its leaders uh, was kind of up to no good, doing unbiblical things in the name of being biblical, and there was quite a stir regarding uh, what they were promoting. And someone recommended a podcast to me called Just Thinking, and it was a pretty new podcast at the time. I hadn't heard of it before, and I listened to it, and I listened to it, and I was so encouraged. I was so thankful. I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. And as soon as I was done listening to it the second time, I sent it to all of my friends. I sent it to the elders of this church. I sent it out as far as as I could because I was so happy with how outrageous, in a good way, uh, these two men were on the Just Thinking podcast. Uh, They were very bold, very courageous, uh, calling things out that Lesser men might not be willing to call out. And so I I, I couldn't believe it. Well, there was also something interesting as I was listening. The one gentleman referred to the other gentleman uh, as Omaha. And I thought, why does he call him Omaha for obvious reasons? And so he said, if you're wondering why why I'm calling my friend Virgil uh, Omaha, it's because he lives in Omaha, Nebraska. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I'm, I'm a nobody uh, from Nowhereville, um, but someone has this kind of theology and lives in Omaha, and I don't know them? So I was troubled, so I quick Google searched Virgil Walker and found out who he was, and uh, as soon as I could, emailed him, hey, can we have lunch? And uh, well, there's a, a lot of water under the bridge by now. We've had a lot of lunches um, and a lot of good fellowship. Uh, I'm really thankful for my friendship with Virgil Walker. Uh, I, little did I know we're neighbors, um, so when you move away, I'm going to be sad. I can't spy on you anymore. Uh, I was driving by your house last night, and my son, Josiah, said, are we going to Virgil's house? So I said, no, we're not going to Virgil's house. He has Oklahoma paraphernalia in his yard. So, Right? The neighbors have like the Mary, and then Virgil has Oklahoma. So anyway, <laughs> there's some wisdom there. And they do have a winning record last time I checked. Anyway, I digress. Um, and Virgil's been a part of Theology for Breakfast uh, here now and then, and so some of you know him through that. All of that to say, um, Virgil and Tamika and their family, they're moving to Georgia, and I'm, it's bittersweet. Uh, I'm going to miss him as a neighbor and as a friend in Omaha, but I'm also thankful because he's going to move to Georgia. They're moving to Georgia so Virgil can be the director of G3 Ministries. And that's a significant ministry that has a significant influence for the glory of God and promoting the gospel and defending the gospel. And so I'm really, really thankful. Uh, I I shed tears when I heard that it happened uh, because I was so thankful that the Lord would use Virgil in that way and his family in that way. So they're headed to Georgia to warmer climate. Um, They're wise in that sense too. But before they leave, I wanted to make sure that I got to share my friendship with Virgil with all of you. Uh, and that he would come here and preach Christ to encourage Christ's people. So let's give a good, I can't say sooner welcome. Let's give a good welcome to Virgil Walker as he comes to preach. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to come. Allow me to just a brief moment as I get set up to, to say a few words of greeting to you and just gratefulness 
uh, to your pastor and what he uh, has meant to me. As he mentioned, I've been a part of uh, Theology for Breakfast from time to time and have enjoyed that and have enjoyed the fellowship with a number of you guys. In fact, as I look out in the crowd, I see a number of familiar faces and people who uh, I've seen and connected with and, uh, and the like. It's, it's been, been great. Uh, Dan Perna is one of them. He, that's that's my, my, my road dog. He's my, my bodyguard. I, I stand behind him. He, he covers me, whether it's street evangelist, you name it. That's my, that's my dude. I put him on blast, put him on the spot there. So uh, you, you can thank me later for that, buddy. Uh, I want to also honor my wife, Tamika, who's here with me. She's wave your hand, babe. She's there. And so thank you so much for being here and being a part. And again, I'm thankful um, to your pastor uh, in a number of different ways. Um, when you're in ministry, sometimes it can be very lonely uh, in that you've got to keep things kind of to yourself and very confidential. And I'm grateful for my friendship with Pat when, the, when from the first time that he reached out to me uh, to, to, to even t- till today in that uh, he, he, he kind of provided a safe space. He's a shepherd of shepherd, uh, shepherds, a, a pastor, has a pastoral heart for pastors. And so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful uh, that he kind of brought me in and, and allowed me from time to time. And Dan would be there at our lunches. Where I would just kind of kind of share my heart and the, the angst and, and challenges of ministry, and uh, he was there to provide wise counsel, encouragement, and just kind of pump me back up and send me back into into the fight. And so, while I we will be moving over the course of time, we'll stay here through uh, uh, May so that my son can finish school, um, and uh, I'll be back and forth, off and on. And from time to time, my hope is would be, and I share this with Pat that you'll see me. Uh, being here when I can and bring my family when when I can. So we'll be a part of uh, visiting from time to time as well. But again, grateful for the ministry here, uh, for what's taking place in this space and uh, for what you all mean to me uh, and, and to the church here locally and to the community locally. Let me begin because uh, Pat had asked me. I was excited because I knew I had a podcast. I was sharing some different things on the podcast. I've traveled some different places and preached different sermons all about cultural apologetics and, and dealing with issues of social justice and cultural apology. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And I thought, oh, he wants, he wants me to preach. I first said, hey, I'm going to visit on the 13th. And he said, oh, great. We'll have you preach. And I thought, man, well, I was just wanting to come visit and just... Slide in the back and roll out. He's no, no, we'll have you preach. And I said, okay, cool. I said, I, I, I've got maybe something I've done at a, at a previous place or space and sermon. He's like, no, I, I want you to, to speak about Christ and, and glorify him. And I said, okay, well, let me get back to my computer and open that up and, and put together a sermon. So that's kind of what I've, I've put together to share with you uh, this morning. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Um, as I've watched Pat do what he does in this space uh, from through social media and, uh, and, and in recordings, I've noticed one of the things that he likes to do is he loves to ask a challenging question or, or make a particular statement and then ask the question as to whether or not the statement rings true based upon what God's word says. And so I thought in that fashion, I would try to accomplish and do the same kind of thing with you today. So allow me, if you will, to make a statement and then ask you, about it, whether or not it's, it's a controversial statement. And that statement is this, that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. Now, on its face, it's probably not a very controversial statement whatsoever, but there, there was a time when it was. And as I, I submitted my sermon to, to Pat, I had him review it. It's always a scary thing when you give a pastor your written sermon. You have no idea what they're going to come back with and the red marks and the outlines. And so I kind of feared I braced for impact. Um, one of the things that 
that, uh, that Pat encouraged me. He said, you know what? If you're going to talk about the challenge of Jesus and the deity of Christ, one of the things you ought to do is, I mean, you ought to talk about the Arian heresy and kind of what happened in church history that, that created one of the first church councils, the Council of Nicaea, and, and kind of unpack the creed. And I thought, brother, I only got 30 minutes. I don't know how all that's going to be possible. But I at least mentioned it. So give me a blue check mark there. So... I'll mention it and keep on pressing with what I had prepared to say. As we consider the, the holiday season and we celebrate uh, Advent, his arrival is coming. The statement Jesus is Lord does not sound very controversial. Uh, in fact, as Christians, we gather weekly to celebrate that truth. And most of us meet weekly without any thought to being persecuted or threatened uh, with violence uh, for our faith in Christ. At least right now we don't. As we enjoy what's left of a culture that is built upon the foundation of a Judeo-Christian worldview, we often lose sight of the fact that, that this statement, this declaration that Jesus is Lord, was one that suffered tremendous persecution. In fact, allow me, if you will, before we get to the text, to remind you of a controversial statement made in Jewish circles by Jesus himself. Keep your finger in Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to land. But I want to read to you a, a, a statement from uh, John's gospel in chapter 10, verses 24 and following. They read this way. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's the controversial statement that he'll make in verse 30. He says this, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And at this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for the good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, the Jews understood plainly the claim that Jesus was, was making. They knew and understood to such a degree that they intended to pick up stones to stone him. They knew that he was making a claim of deity, that in fact he was saying that Jesus is Lord. He was the Lord. As we walk through our time together, I, 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 I intend to place some context around that statement and others. But, but let me say this, even today... Um, there are many in, in current culture who aren't uh, appreciative, who, who respond differently to the idea that Jesus is Lord. There's, there's challenges to that idea in a lot of different spaces and places. But with that in mind, I want us to look at our text for today. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. Colossians 1, verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all Creation For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. Now, by way of, of just a brief context regarding the section of Scripture that I just read, Paul would write this letter while in prison. He was writing this to the church at Colossae. It would, it would be a young convert. Uh, some believe that, to be the, the, one of the pioneers to the church in Colossae, Epaphras, who had begun to witness the growing challenges of syncretism in that area. Syncretism. Let me explain what that means. It is, it is the attempted merging of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought into one cohesive unit. So to understand the syncretism that was happening in Colossae, you have to understand a little bit about the culture of the, uh, at the time of Paul's writing of this particular letter. In Colossae, many people would pick up from a variety of religious practices from around them. They, they, they began to see what was happening in culture and identify what leaders or those who were leading particular religious movements were doing, and they began to adopt their ideas. Allow me to explain. And it, it, there were the Judaizers. You had the Judaizers. And these were Jews who had become Christian. But they were always insisting that Jesus wasn't enough. In fact, they believed that it was the law of Moses that needed to be followed in order to inherit eternal life. Primarily here, what was in view by the Judaizers was the issue of circumcision. The issue of circumcision. There, there, were, there were the other mystics. Some believed that these mystics were actually the beginning forms of Gnosticism, those who had secret knowledge. And, and what they believed was that Jesus was a spirit emanation of God, but that he was not really God. There were other groups of mystics, again, those with special knowledge, who believed that, that it was important to obtain special revelation. And, and that as they obtained that special revelation, many of them would begin praying to angels in an effort to understand what God had to say. Now, for the believer in Christ, you can imagine being in this in this cultural milieu around the first century. This was a lot to deal with. A brand new Christians looking around and seeing Judaizers, those who've been a part of the religion for some time, explaining to them how their religion should indeed be practiced. You had mystics who were trying to figure out what what special revelation was taking place. And for a brand new Christian, this could be rather confusing. So it was Paul's letter as he met with Epaphras that would set the record straight on this issue. Now, in, in studying the syncretism that you find in Colossae, one of the things that I thought about was, are there parallels to this kind of thing happening in our day? Could we, 2,000 years removed from that time frame, have, have mimic some of the same ideas and same thought processes that those who were in Colossae actually experienced? Even having the benefit of the historic record of Jesus, is there any way possible that we could be involved in syncretism, the syncretism of our day. Now, before I move forward, let me, let me lay out, because there are many of you, I see pens that are going, so let me lay out for you maybe an outline of sorts for how to navigate where we're going to go. For one, I, I'm going to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're going to ask that question and outline for you who he is. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to answer that question using the text that I just read in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to provide three answers. Three answers. Those answers are these. Number one, that Jesus is the image of God. That Jesus is the image of God. Number two, that Jesus is the creator of all. That Jesus is the creator of all. And that finally, Jesus is the sustainer of all the sustainer 
of all. There's actually a, a fourth point that we'll wrap things up on, and which is the declaration. That's the I've, I've already proven the case. I've made the case. So the declaration is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's where we're headed. So let's first start with the question: Who is Jesus? It was a message that I heard preached. Uh, once in the past by a pastor friend of mine who gave an example of the types of Jesus that are often worshipped in our culture. And, and most of these images of Jesus are actually created in the minds of individuals rather than being anything that they've pulled from the pages of Scripture. Let me lay them out before you. You have social justice Jesus. And this is the Jesus who's against white racism and against white fragility and, and therefore reducing the oppression of oppressed groups, primarily people of color. There was therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems. He heals our past and he tells us how valuable we are and how not to be so hard on ourselves. You have open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people, of course, who are not as open-minded as they are about the issues, right? You have touchdown Jesus. I'm going to leave that one alone for this crew. All right. Touchdown, Jesus, who helps athletes run faster. He mentioned my Sooner background. I'll leave that alone. Who helps uh, athletes run faster, jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of football games. You have martyr Jesus. He was a good man who died a cruel death so that we could feel sorry for him. You have gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild with high cheekbones and flowing hair. He walked around barefoot with wearing a sash and really levitated off the ground about two inches everywhere that he went. There's spirituality Jesus. This is the Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's two more examples. One is boyfriend Jesus, boyfriend Jesus. He wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. And then finally, good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people, how to change the planet and how to become a better you, how to become a better you. As I reflect upon the reality of these types of Jesus that we amplify in our culture, I realize that we're not far off from the people that we're seeing in the first century church, in the church in Colossae. Understanding the the syncretism that plagues us helps us to understand how the issues that were surrounding the, the church in Colossae could actually be a reality. Well, Paul, opening his letter to the church at Colossae, he does so with a brief greeting. Uh, And then with a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he begins full bore with what some theologians believe to be an early Christian hymn. Verses 15 and following, some believe to be an early Christian hymn. Some refer to it as the Colossian hymn. And they do so for its rhyme and, and cadence. While reflecting on the full majesty of Christ, beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn of all creation. So again, the first point is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Clearly stated, Paul begins here without ambiguity, without equivocation, without imprecision, and he declares from the outset that Jesus is God. The, the word there in the, the the word image in the Greek is the word icon, E I K O. We get our word icon, I see 
O-N. In the English, it sounds the same, but spelled differently. It means the likeness or copy. A likeness or copy. Sometimes it means like the imprint of a coin as the ref- or, or a reflection in a mirror. This, what, what this is saying is that Jesus is the perfect image and exact likeness of God. We know that God is spirit, therefore he is invisible to the human eye. We know that no one has seen God, right? Scripture is absolutely clear about this. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. John six forty six. not that anyone has seen the Father. First John four twelve. no one has ever seen God. Children often ask, What does God look like? If you're a parent, you have littles, you know that this is the question that's coming that you're going to have to deal with at some point. So the the, the thing we should think through is how should we answer that? We should answer that by pointing them to Jesus Christ, who is the revelation and representation of God to us because he is God in human flesh. He is fully God and fully man. John chapter 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as, as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this in no way diminishes his deity. Jesus would simply assume humanity as the God-man. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes that clear. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Regarding this particular issue, uh, C.S. Lewis, again, you may be challenged with aspects of, of, the, of the theology of C.S. Lewis, but with regard to Jesus, he gets this particular point rather clear when, when he says this, quote, there is only one of three possibilities regarding Jesus. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is indeed Lord, end quote. Now, upon reflecting upon the truth of what What's being said, Paul in in chapter 1 verse 15 would actually revisit this issue in the same book in chapter 2 verse 9 when it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. I want you to take a quick look again at verse 15 because on the back half of, of verse 15, he says something that needs to be addressed where he says that, that he, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. It's incredibly important to unpack this a little bit from a standpoint of, of dealing with the, with the cults because more, more times than not, they'll use this section of scripture to say things about Jesus that the Bible is not actually saying. It does not mean that Jesus was the firstborn in a sense of birth order, nor does it mean that Jesus was created. This is where the cults actually get it wrong. This passage means that the firstborn, he simply means that he has all authority and rights as those that would be given a firstborn child. Well, how do we know this? How do we know this is true? Well, we see this when, when God refers to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, it, it reads this way, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, God instructing Moses, and you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And we know that that Israel is not the first nation that ever existed. 
Uh, it, it, it's, it's, in fact, at this point in time, what we know about Israel is that they're, they're hardly even a nation. They're, they're still under the, the slavery of Egypt at that time. So it's not even that they've, they've really formed themselves as a nation. And so what we're witnessing here is that God is referring to Israel from a standpoint of a chosen people whom he has given special treatment as a result of his grace. In the same way, God the Father has given the Son all authority and all rights marked and established as a firstborn son. Point number two is that Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. I want you to take a look at verse 16. Allow me to kind of walk through this. It says that Paul sets up rather the, it sets forth rather the creative power in this verse of who Jesus is by saying this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that hangs outside of verse 16. In fact, the the entirety of the universe is captured and is self-contained in this one particular verse. I I love what R.C. Sproul often says about this particular verse. He says, there's not one idle molecule that hangs outside of the expanse of this key verse. This is where the false religions and the cults actually get it wrong. They, they, They mistake Jesus as simply a prophet. Or they mistake Jesus as Michael, the archangel, or even the spirit brother of Satan himself. Scripture couldn't be clearer about who Jesus is. John chapter one, verses one through three read this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. Romans eleven thirty six says from him uh, for for from him Jesus and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Thirdly, he is the s- sustainer. Jesus is the sustainer of all things in him. All things hold together. In other words, he didn't just create things and then walk away as some deist would have you to believe. He's both transcendent meaning he's above all things, and he is eminent, meaning he is permanently invading all that he has created. Furthermore, he sustains everything by the word of his power. Verse 17 begins with, he is before all things, meaning he's pre-existent. Jesus, who was outside of time, actually, uh, actually runs into, cracks open the heavens and, and begins to, to be a part of, of humanity. He invades time and space and meets us absolutely where we are. There are a number of places in Scripture where you can go to point this out. For the sake of time, allow me to give you just a couple of verses. John 17, 5, where Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Or or where he says in John chapter 5, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am understanding this claim to deity there were many at that time who picked up the stones to to throw at him all of this establishes the preeminence of jesus the christ that he was before time before all created order and that he is the one who created all things 
Have you ever wondered what keeps the earth spinning on its axis? What holds the globe together while it's spinning at a a thousand miles an hour, providing for us a 24-hour day? Do you ever think about the laws of gravity or the, the first or second law of thermodynamics, the laws of inertia? All of these are held together by the power of the word of God. He is the sustainer of all things. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think when when I think about the the magnitude and majesty of of Christ, it's interesting with regard to him being the sustainer of all things that I think kids actually get it right when they sing the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Verse 18 establishes Jesus as Lord. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is absolutely where things get incredibly personal for each and every one of us. The establishment of Jesus as Lord, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It would be an old Baptist pastor, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge for short. He, he was born in in, in 1913, he passed away April 4th of 2000. He would feel the call to ministry to preach at the age of 27 and accepted his first pastorate in 1942 at the Ford, Fourth Ward Baptist Church in Ennis, Texas. In, in 1952, he was named the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. Now, this was a predominantly black church. It was a black congregation. And, and it would be this platform that God would use as he established a very famous sermon as he explained to his people that Jesus was Lord. Let me walk you through what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge had to say. He shared this message called, That's My King. Now, I, I will not try to capture kind of the tone and cadence of this powerful preacher, but allow me to give you what he actually said in context. He says this, and I'm, again, I'm quoting from his sermon. He says, The Bible says, My King is the King of the Jews. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of righteousness. He's the King of the ages. He is the King of heaven. He's the King of glory. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my King. I wonder, do you know Him? My King is a sovereign King. No means of measure can define His limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know Him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. He is, the son, he is God's son. He is the sinner's savior. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled and unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior, I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He, he's, able to, he's, he's, he's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. 
He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? He is the key to knowledge, the wellspring of wisdom. He is the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of, of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness and the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. And his word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave could not hold them. Yes, Jesus, that's my king. He's our king today. And uh, we're, we're grateful for the opportunity as we gather as the body of Christ, as the fellowship of believers to worship that king. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And as we think through this time of year, my hope would be that you would call out to that living God and share him with friends. Let me pray as we close. Father God, I thank you so much for today, for an opportunity to engage the truth of your word. My prayer would be that, that you would use your word to stir the hearts of these, your people, that they would be conformed into the image of your son as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.